I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. My guest this week is Abby Ivory, who, growing up in Utah, is passionate about the outdoors. Most days, you will find her stealing away to the slopes or streams. Her day job, though, is as a senior associate at Sorensen Impact, where she pioneered the development of the Ivory Prize a couple of years ago. The Ivory Prize is an annual award recognizing ambitious, feasible, and scalable solutions to housing affordability, specifically solutions that combine elements of finance, policy, and design and construction. In the past few years, she's built an impressive portfolio of companies through the Ivory Prize, doing some amazing things to solve for the housing crisis in America. Listen in as we discuss what drives Abby and the lessons from her childhood that have shaped her outlook and drive. I love growing up in Utah. I think it's such a great place, but also because I love the mountains and I just grew up loving the mountains. And um, my, um, but I also grew up in a family where my, um, my dad and my mom had like a huge uh, priority on hard work. And I think that's something that has always been really important to me since I was young, because I always knew like, if I had a job, then my parents, you know, then I could do kind of more of what I wanted. And that was a funny value that got instilled in me very young. And so, you know, understanding the value of hard work, but then also you know, my mom and dad are both very generous people and spend a lot of time giving back to the community. And so just kind of seeing that example in them since like, you know, as I was growing up was something that I think was super important mm-hmm. as well. And so kind of helped me um, understand where I wanted to go, I cool. guess, with my life. Um but, you know, growing up in Utah, like, sea instructing, super fun. Um, that was my favorite <laughs> job when I was in high school. So yeah. I had a free pass. I know. Um, but, uh, but it was, you know, I think just growing up, my family actually runs, uh, my dad runs the largest home builder in the state of Utah. And so ever since I was, like, 13, I was working over at their office. And um, it was really just a fun place to work and a lot to learn when I was there and really understand how much it takes to run a business. Yeah. Um, this is a lot. And so I think, you know, kind of growing up, uh, it made me want to do more with my career and find ways where I could kind of give back. And I think initially I was very focused more on like nonprofit work or different things along those lines. Um, worked with actually a sports marketing group that brings people into the state of Utah. So they're technically a nonprofit, but I love the outdoors and sports too. So it kind of like brings everything together for me. Um, and then ended up deciding to go to business school after that. And when I was in business school, um, and, and really for the main reason that I wanted to find a way that I could make, you know, the best impact and kind of look for my path. And I think a lot of people go into business school with like a goal of where they want to end up. And I was a more ambiguous, Mm -hmm. um, person, like my goals are a little bit more ambiguous. And so I came into, um, business school wanting to find out what I wanted to do. And I ended up with an internship at Equilibrium Capital that summer. And David Chen, who is um, the CEO of that group, he um, he really helped me to understand a few things. And I think one of the most important things was that finance is so key to unlocking, you know, a lot of different um unlocking capital, I guess, that can be used to solve these solutions or to solve these problems. Um, And so we really, when I was with him, I really understood that if I had a solid understanding of finance, then I could actually come into some of these social problems that I cared about a little bit more and, um, you know, apply 
you yeah. know, this, yeah. this more analytical financial, um, learning and really help them grow in a way that they couldn't grow without it. And, um, a, specifically we went to green bonds first because, uh, you know, the bond market is so huge, right? <laughs> and if that market can be tapped for something that has a positive social impact, I mean, it's crazy. And yeah. green bonds were the first thing that kind of had moved in that direction, I guess, for the bond market that had made the bonds more transparent. So people knew where they were spending their money, how the proceeds were being spent. Um, and I think that that was a really important step there, but you know, there, there are a lot of different ways that we can use this and unlock that capital. And so I think just having a solid understanding of finance, um, is something that has really helped me too to kind of like move in this direction. So, yeah. So it sounds like David Chen kind of helped you through that internship kind Mm -hmm. of say, okay, so finance as a, so moving back even further. So your parents, generous parents, uh, instilling the value of hard work. Is there, is there a specific experience or moment where you're like, there's a memory that's stuck in your, in your brain from, from your parents, um, that you're like, wow, I, I really, I want to, I want to lock this away and remember, remember this as I go through life. There's not one specific moment because I think it's just like this overall example that is just so stuck in my head. And the overall example of both my grandpa and my dad, are like very hard workers. And my dad actually ended up purchasing um, his like ivory homes from his dad um, who started it. And his um, and his dad kind of wanted to walk away. I guess this is like an example that, that sticks out to me. And so when my grandfather had built up the business to a certain point, he had kind of, you know, felt like, okay, we've done it. I've made enough money that I can, you know, comfortably live and my kids can comfortably live and this is where I can move and whatever else. And um, he was kind of ready to step back. And my dad was like, he, he didn't want to step back. Mm. He really wanted to do more. And he felt like he could really grow the business. And he felt like, you know, um, that there could be a lot of good that's done from this. And so I've watched my dad kind of take a, a very active role in that as he took over the company and started to grow it, but then has served in so many capacities, you know, um, he was on the board of trustees. He's, he's been, um, a member of the federal reserve, like kind of helped with some stuff there. And like every time he's asked to like serve or to give back, he's always stepped up and done that. And I've seen that continually. Yeah. And it sounds like that's, that's what sticks in your mind most is, you know, your, your father's, uh, willingness to kind of just put aside his own kind of, I mean, I think in Utah or anywhere in the country, uh, business leaders oftentimes are so focused. What I'm hearing you say a lot is he was present. He was present, not just with his company growing Mm -hmm. that, but also with the community and with his family, Yeah, you know, so along the way you're, you're journeying with him. You're there. He's teaching you. He's instructing you. You're seeing that example lived out. And that's, that's a pretty cool, a pretty cool message uh, for a young person trying to figure out the world, right? Yeah, it was important <laughs> for me. So. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, too often it's uh, it's the sad reality of of absent parents, absent fathers, and so it's neat to hear you uh, really appreciate the example of your parents uh, as it shapes you. So let's get to um, let's get to the to the Ivory Prize um, yes. specifically and Sorensen Impact. Like it's been a part of your work. Uh, Senator Lee from Utah, he once said, if housing affordability is a key component of family affordability, and the American market is in desperate need of housing innovation in the marketplace and every level of policy to relieve this mounting pressure. 
Um, so how, how for you, how is the Ivory Prize helping solve this housing affordability issue? And why, and why this method? Why, why the prize concept? Um, and how, have, how has that worked for you over the last several years? Okay. Um, well, so I got, I, I started working at Sorensen Impact a few years ago and working on their impact investment team specifically. And that's been a fabulous experience for me because it's some, it's been a place where I've been able to really learn the importance of, or learn that you can, um, also that you can make a return and then also give back and mm. like the ret- making the return and investing in sustainable businesses, I think is very important because the business is able to continue and they're not heavily reliant on grant funding. And you're like investing in these businesses that are very sustainable and being reliant on grant funding is fine, but it's in order for businesses to grow and really scale, it's nice to invest in something that is sustainable over the long run. And I think working for Sorensen, I really had seen that and spent a decent amount of time working with people with larger foundations, with, you know, different high net worth individuals where they're really looking to deploy their capital in a way where they're creating a positive social impact. And so doing a lot of research in that way. And so initially with this ivory prize idea, you know, my dad came in about a couple of years ago and he was like, Hey, you know, we've been doing a lot of stuff in Utah and he runs the largest home builder in the state. And he was like, we care about housing affordability. How can we invest in it? And, um, I think that's something, you know, we, that, that we started to really think about and, uh, took some time to think about how we could invest in it and ended up, uh, talking to a few people from across the country. Um, we work really closely with the Harvard joint center for housing and Chris Herbert and the Turner center at Cal Berkeley and, uh, Carol Galante and, you know, the Urban Institute and Lori Goodman and a few other people that just, you know, really came in and helped us start to shape this idea. And so we pulled together this fabulous board of advisors. And then, you know, as we talked through it, realized that we can't just um, invest in some of these companies um, because we can't only um, be looking at for-profit businesses in this space because there's just just not one solution. There isn't one company that's going to come out that's going to have the solution to the problem. It's really like there are so many different facets to the issue of housing affordability. And I think, you know, we've kind of parsed it into three buckets, uh, one being financial innovation, another being construction and design and kind of changing the way that we run those processes. And then um, the the third and probably most important is uh, policy and regulatory reform, because without policy changes and different regulatory reforms, like changes in code or different things, we just can't, you know, even implement any of these things that are coming through the construction pipeline or the financial pipeline. Um, And so I think we ended up setting up the prize structure because we wanted to award people in each of these three areas. And so spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about that and then kind of went in and started searching out companies and seeing who was out there for our first year, which is really fun. Um, In the... And you're in year two? I'm in year two. Yeah, yeah. we're in year two. That's and great. so this is our second year. The first year was really fabulous. We had like about 120 nominees come in and people who were interested. And then this year we're up to 168. That's great. Um, which is fabulous. And it's been really interesting to see the trends that have come through this. Who, uh, it's, it, it's provided me with the opportunity to see, you know, just this overall marketplace and what's happening and yeah. where people are moving. And well, one of the things I'm, I'm interested to kind of, step back and, and address real quick. It's, it's, it's interesting. Cause I think when the everyday person hears housing, mm-hmm. they immediately jump to brick and mortar, or if they hear affordable housing, they immediately think projects or 
government assistance housing um, or subsidized housing or Habitat for Humanity. They have their mental picture of what is housing and what is affordable housing. So it's interesting to hear you say that it's a much bigger bigger thing, uh, dealing with financial models and policy changes and just this this archaic system that we have for builders and, and new and innovative approaches to design and construction. Uh, and then even some of the other aspects of housing, like um, transportation issues. And so and when you really get, so as, as you, how would you define the issue of housing affordability? Like if you were talking to someone that just Im- immediately had the picture that I painted, what would you say to them is, is really the, the, uh, the, the issues that we need to be addressing? So there are so many issues to be addressing here. We focus on, when we say housing affordability, what we're looking for is making housing more attainable for the median income earner. More attainable. Yes. And so... Um, and then like financially attainable. Okay. Yeah. So Great. either like financially attainable or, um, you know, also just, I mean, I guess... I guess it is all, it all boils down to financially attainable, right? Like, so like, can they afford it? How do we get into these? Um, so if we can homes? iterate on design and construction and, mm-hmm. and keep those costs down, if we can readjust the policy to right. where it, the, the permitting processes aren't as expensive or time consuming, then, then we can actually reduce the total costs and make it more affordable and attainable. Right. Okay. Exactly. And like, so, now, so some of the huge cost drivers in um, housing are obviously there's a huge labor shortage. Mm. And so one thing we've looked at is how do we incentivize people to go into, you know, careers that are more focused on, you know, in the trades, I guess. And so it's really interesting because you can actually, if you want to be an electrician right now, you're going to go to school for a minute and come out making over a hundred thousand dollars with very little, if no debt at all. And, you know, if you want to be a plumber, a journeyman, Mm. if you want to do drywall, I mean, all of these people are in such high demand that people are paying an incredible amount for them. And so it's interesting to see because right now we have this trend where everyone wants to go to university and get a degree and do all that. But we've also seen the amount of student debt rising um, to incredibly high levels. And so it's like, how do we kind of change or get some sort of mind shift change to towards the trades and make it a more desirable career? Because- it's definitely think, a place you can make a living. Well, and I think that's one of the challenges. It's that's interesting the way you phrase it, the de- desirability. Because I, I agree. I mean, growing up a child of the 80s, um, you know, I mean, it's like you go high school, college, and like mm-hmm. that's what you do. And that's success. That's professional success. And the idea of trades was like this other than thing that you didn't only did if you couldn't go to college. And I think that's that's not the story we want people to hear nor believe. And so I think the desirability piece is, is a challenge, but also like, how do we solve that? Because it's a pretty, it's a pretty great way to provide for your family, to, you know, do something that's, that's meaningful. Uh, and it doesn't require a college degree. Exactly. So. Or an, or a significant amount of debt. And, exactly. And so, I mean, I think that's a huge uh, solution or a huge thing to focus on. And we've seen a few companies focusing on that recently. Um, and then, you know, also the cost of land, the mm-hmm. cost of materials. I mean, there are so many things with just housing in general where you're finding all these crazy costs going up yeah. and then a lot of regulatory barriers, um, especially as we see different trends. I mean, you guys are working with a group, uh, I think pad splits in your oh, cohort yeah. and co-living has been a huge trend that I've seen this last year. I mean, I've spent a lot of time looking at all of these different groups that are focused on co-living, which um, people... They, they really like the word co-living and a lot of people just feel like it's they're facilitating roommates, you know, <laughs> kind of like in the same space and, or dorms and they hate if yeah. you compare it to dorm. 
like dorm living, but um, it kind of is a similar, you know. Well, and I think they also are addressing multiple, I mean, because all of these issues are interrelated, you know, like pad yeah. split, for example, or others in the co-living. Uh, they're, they're hitting that, the cost of housing, mm-hmm. but also the other issues in society around loneliness, you know, yeah. people feeling disconnected from their neighbors and community. And so if we bring them into a closer proximity with some shared space, maybe they'll, maybe they'll talk to one another. Uh, yeah. And, so. and some of the regulatory reform issues behind that are, you know, a lot of states have, um, you know, strict regulations on how many people can live in the same household who are unrelated and, you know, whether or not you can have uh, locking doors inside the home. There are a bunch of different regulations that they kind of have to go through to actually break through and whenever they're going into a new city or area. And yeah. so I think, you know, just understanding that there is a huge policy component to everything that's happening here as well, especially, you know, if we could increase the or speed up the time in which people, you know, want to build a home, permitting processes, anything like that, if we can increase any efficiencies within the government, that's always super helpful. Uh, also very difficult. But there is another company who's here. They're called Symbium, and they are spending a lot of time. Um, they're in the Ivory Prize, you know, top 25 group this year. But they're spending a lot of time um, helping government really increase efficiencies um, while they're, you know, figuring out permitting and doing a lot of different stuff, especially pertaining cool. to ADUs, which is, are those accessory dwelling units. Yeah. What I, what I love about the prize um, is because it's multifaceted, what you've done is you've created a cohort, you know, where there's coopetition. You're right. They're all in the housing industry. They're all trying to solve these problems. There might be places where they overlap, but they're able to kind of come together and figure things out where Symbian might be able to support pad split or, in relief might be able to, you know, whatever we've seen at least, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing your second year in just the ability for them to cooperate and work together and solve collectively the problems that, that we see around housing. It's absolutely my favorite thing about this process actually. So last year, um, we, what we do is before we announce the winners, we bring in our top 10 group and we have this big group discussion and it's fabulous because everyone is focused on solving the same problem, but they're all in a different vertical. Mm-hmm. And so once you get them in the same room, they're sitting there, um, you know, talking about different issues that they have. And it's been really interesting to see just like that conversation start and the amount of learning that can happen, you know, across sectors. And so they kind of come in and they sit down and they talk about different solutions that they've seen to the problem or, you know, think big pain point for points for them and other people know, you know, how to solve them. And I think it's really hard because sometimes we just put our heads down and we get in this mentality that, you know, I'm going forward and I'm going to be the best at what I'm doing. And I think that's fabulous. But then when you maybe take a step back and can kind of look at the broader perspective, then I think that's when they really start seeing some things that can help, you know, or some different solutions that are actually going to help them grow faster or, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of different things. Um, I think that change in perspective is really important. And I love seeing that. That's one of the best parts about this price structure or, like anything, what you guys are doing, it's just bringing all these different people together and, you know, they become super collaborative and it's a, it's a great space to be in. So challenges of housing, so there's problems you're solving. I want to, I want to speak to, so what have you seen and how do you respond to some of the challenges that actually just face your approach? Uh, Because I'm sure you get them. Uh, you know what I mean? Cause every, everybody's got, a, everybody's a critic yeah. and yeah. So we all have our critics. Yes. Uh, and so what I love is like people that just kind of like, okay, we've, we've put this board of advisors together. We don't know a lot. And so we're going to get some smart people in a room. We're going to try to figure out the best approach. And so I, I feel like that's what you're doing, 
but that doesn't mean you still don't have your critics. So how do you respond to your critics, especially in housing, especially the one, one big things are like gentrification or, you know, uh, wealth extraction because we are not a part of this community. Uh, what about asset-based community development? So how, how do you over, overlap and intersect with, with some of, some of those in the community and, and, and how do we kind of move beyond these slings and arrows that we throw back and forth and, and try to actually solve some of these problems? What, what would you say to someone like that? Okay. I, um, I work with students a lot too. Yeah. And so oh, be, another, because we're at the university yeah. and, um, we're based out of the university. So we do a lot of this student work. And so we do have all these experts, but, um, we did get a little bit of flack for that at one point, or we, we maybe we just oh, thought through it, but it was just like, how do we think of new innovative solutions? If you know, we only have people who are experts, like where is the innovation coming from? And we spent a lot of time thinking about that. And then just being like, you know, who is really facing this problem right now are these students that we mm. work with every day. And so we've spent a lot of time working with students. We run a program called hack a house where they have 24 hours to come up with a solution for housing affordability. And it is so fun to see the solutions that come out of that because they're new. They're very creative. They're not, you know, they haven't been in the industry for years and those are fun solutions. Not always feasible, but, but you know, interesting and yeah. insightful. And, and it gets them to kind of see, I think, cause sometimes they come in with their opinions mm -hmm. and then when they actually try to actually approach it and come up with an idea and they're like, wait a minute, it's not going to work. Yeah. It's helpful, right? There's those light bulbs start going off. Um, so that's really neat. It really yeah. gets them thinking, which is yeah. super fun. Um, and, and we also teach a class for these students. And so the, my example, just to answer your sure. question, um, kind of came through this, this course that we teach. And so I was up there and we were talking about different things, actually specifically talking about modular building and showing, um, uh, some videos of this factory up in Vallejo, California called Factory OS, where they are, you know, producing units and they can produce them very quickly, about four apartment units a day, I think right now. And it's been really interesting to watch that grow. And the students, you know, this younger generation were, they were so excited. They loved that. And then um, we had two women in the class who were auditing the class and they were in their 80s. Mm -hmm. And, um, <laughs> that's awesome, which was awesome. That's so cool. Different perspectives. Yeah. Um, and so, and we kind of were also talking about like this Yimby NIMBY. So like not in my backyard and then the opposing movement, which is yes, in my backyard. And so, um, going through a little bit of that. And so as we kind of brought up this topic, um, you know, all of the students are like, I don't really understand how people can be opposed to development. We all need this. This is, you know, something that's really important. And then one of these older women who was in the class, she was like, uh, she gets in there and she just says, I am anti-development. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, she lives <laughs> in an area in Utah. It's called Sugar House and it's, it's grown really rapidly. And she was bothered because she grew up there and she used to be able to, you know, walk to this corner store, a lot of very like nostalgic mm -hmm. memories and things that are fabulous. But you know, she's, she was very, um, opposed to the amount of growth that we've seen in this area. And so for her, it's kind of ruining what was her community. Yeah. And it was really interesting to kind of get her to start talking about this. And, you know, in order for me to talk to someone who's very opposed to a lot of development or growth or any of the things that we're doing, a lot of times I just like to ask them. And, and I did ask her, you know, what do you think we should do? We have so many people moving into the state. We have an incredible amount of population growth. We, the amount of households being creative created every year are, you know, it's so much higher than the amount of homes that are being created. And we have this housing gap. 
of, you know, in Utah, it's 40,000 units across the country. It's like around 400,000 units. And, um, how do you propose that we solve that Mm. solution? You know? And when you put the question back to someone, I think it's always super interesting to hear how they respond and everyone's different in this case. Um, she was kind of, telling us, you know, we shouldn't have entrepreneurs come into the community, um, that, you know, they're bringing in too much growth and ruining things. And I think think it's an interesting question because if I'm hearing you correctly, what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is it's really, Hey, this problem is it's multifaceted, but I do want to hear your perspective. So it's like, you know, share with me your, your side. Cause I, I think, you know, there's compassion in that question there's a desire to kind of uh, empathize with them because, you know, she's coming from decades of, of nostalgia and, and her experience. Um, but her experience, if you think about it, excluded a lot of uh, persons uh, historically, right? You know, look mm-hmm. at the histories across our country of redlining and, and just how that has affected many of our communities. And so now young people, that's that's their reaction, right? They, they want development, not for the sake of, of like, increasing profits for these wealthy people. It's, it's to make room and to make things more equitable. So on both sides, how do we listen to one another? How do we ask that question of like, okay, what, what would you do? Because we've got, we've got the problem of like long-term residents that want to keep things as they are, but we couple that with the problem of history and the problem of growth how do we balance these problems? Right. Right. And I mean, it was so interesting to see the students reaction to this as well, because yeah. they were so convinced no one else thought differently than that. <laughs> right. Like they were like, how did they respond? You know, that was awesome. Like they, well, they were just so thrown off by that. Right. Yeah. Like they all kind of listened to her and then we, you know, and then a couple of them went up to her after to ask her a few more questions. They all came up to me and were just talking to me about, you know, I just didn't even know this perspective existed. Mm. I didn't fully understand it. And I think, just understanding that these other perspectives are there and like also asking, like you're saying, asking why they believe this way or why they feel this way kind of starts a conversation that's a little bit more helpful than these conversations that are super closed off and anti, you know, like I don't want to hear the other person's perspective or, you know, anything on that. So it's, I think that's something that we've used a lot. So, so shaped, shaped by your parents, which is a really cool story, and I think uh, a privilege many many kids don't get to get to enjoy. And then, Absolutely. and then the experiences of college and internships, kind of figuring out what you want to do. Uh, now, running the Ivy Prize, working at Sorensen Impact, kind of deep in it, right? How, how, what are some challenges? Like, what I hear a lot of times in the media is this: um, "Oh, that's cool," you know, around impact investing or uh, profit and purpose, right? Values. Um, but it's still, it's penetrating, mm-hmm. but it hasn't yet penetrated the, the common psyche of how we think about money, how we think about community. What, what, from your perspective, what is, what's still holding that up? That is a, that's a question I've actually been thinking a little bit about lately. And one thing I think, you know, we've, I've been wondering, so like we watch these markets grow and we just haven't seen as many people coming into impact investing as we thought we would, or like they haven't been moving as quickly as we thought that they would. And I think, you know, part of that is like a lack of understanding and education on what impact investing is and, you know, how we can actually grow that. And I think, you know, we spent a lot of time actually last night, I was working with this group of women um, and we were working on training, you know, women in investment because 
they, you know, they were, they were concerned or wanting to know, I'd take a more active role in their finances. And so as we kind of went through that, um, one of the things that we pointed out is, you know, women, um, spend about, I think it's like around 90% of the money that they spend is on their community or their family. Mm. Um, and for men, that's like 37%. And so it's really interesting to see that difference, um, that women spent like channel about three times of that money back into the community. But men um, are traditionally making a lot more of these investment decisions. And so a lot of times it's more uh, focused on profit rather than social impact. And one thing to kind of help people understand is that with an impact investing, you can get you know, a return while you're making an impact. And a lot of these women, most of the women there actually spent um, they spend the majority of their money that they're giving away, um, on grants or different things along those lines. And they had never thought about investing, um, as we talked to them even just last night. And this is a group of women, this is brand new, but like to kind of move their mentality into from granting into investment, I think is really interesting to kind of show them what impact investing is and that it's a really a fabulous way to, I mean, you can take on a significant amount of risk if you're willing to. You can take on a low amount of risk if you're willing to. It just depends on which yeah. stage of investment and you want to hit. And yeah, stage. And then I, just, I think the other part of it is like impact investing, the, the modifier impact is, is confusing, right? So Because yeah. it's like yes. really at the end of the day, like what do you care about? Yes. Right. What do you want to achieve in the world? How do you think about work? Uh, it just, just even talking to ladies as you were last night, like them aligning their values with their money is gonna have unbelievable impact. Just just investing in women who who lead great companies and create profit is creating impact. Absolutely, right? in, in, yeah. in, You know, increasing the amount of capital towards people of color and, and female founders is is going to change the way we think about our communities. So that's really cool. Yeah, no, and and I do. I really think a lot of it does boil down to education because no. that is so many people Which just don't know. Yeah, and even like educating also we spend a significant amount of time educating um financial advisors as well Mm. just because they don't even know the options that are available to them or they're unwilling to explore things that aren't on their platform their investment platform and so we spend a lot of time talking to them so that they can kind of make their clients aware of what's happening and then but we also want to make this available to anyone who's interested in impact investing you know and so who wants to give back to their community in in this way and so i think that it's it's, it's a really interesting thing. And I think we, there are a lot of steps that are still, that we still need to take to really spread this, you know, awareness about what impact investing is, but hopefully we get there. (laughs) We're working on it. If you would like to learn more about Abby and the ivory prize, visit ivoryinnovations.org. They announced the 2020 winners, April 16th, and you can check those out as well on their website. Again, if you've liked what you've heard, drop us a review, subscribe, and stay tuned for next week's episode check out our work at accessventures.org. I'm Bryce Butler. Thanks for listening.